This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. This is a podcast combining sobriety, topics such as sex, dating, living sober, having fun, being young, and just overall making sobriety cool. We do specials on treatment centers in Southern California, and we bring in all kinds of awesome, cool, unique guests to our show. And today, we've brought in the amazing, the fabulous, Susan Ryder. Hi, Susan. Hi. How are you, Brian? Hey, hey, I'm doing well. We're feeling animated, energized, spunky a little bit. Uh So uh, I've met Susan at a, a company dinner and got to know her a little bit, and she works at a local... uh Behavioral Health Hospital, right? Yep. Aurora. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what do you guys do there? So at the hospital, we do detox, we do rehab, and we also do um, mental health stabilization. So for folks that are on a 5150 or who need more Ooh. than just uh, working with a therapist one-on-one. Okay. Is there such thing as a 5250? <laughs> there actually so, is. Okay. Someone told me like you can be 5150 and then 5250. Absolutely. There are tons of welfare and institution codes. There's... 5150, 5151, 5152, 5250. Oh, wow. Get out of here. I know. Okay, cool, cool. And do you guys work with uh, all ages? I mean, how, what's the, what's the breakdown there? So all the way down to five. um, And then all the way up through, I think we've had our oldest patient was like 102. Whoa. Yeah. So mental health really is about everyone. It is. We just don't room (laughs) the five-year-olds with the 102-year-olds. Got it. Got it. Yeah, let's leave them be. Maybe they have their mommies with them, huh? Holding them, loving on them. (laughs) Oh, maybe they get some special time then. Uh, Yeah, they do. They get some special time. Cool, cool. Well, right on, Susan. Um, We'll jump into some of our lovely questions we normally go through. And then I have a few audience questions for you. Perfect. And then let's just kind of take it where it goes. We'll see. We'll see what happens here. Awesome. So question number one is what's your vision? What's your personal vision or, or your vision for the world? Like What do you want to see? So my specialty is sex therapy. Um, I'm a psychologist who does sex therapy as a part of the work that I do. And, you know, I came to sex therapy in a really interesting way, which was having very open-minded parents talking about sex with me at a very young age Mm -hmm. and not being rigid about what you should and shouldn't do. The, The only kind of parameters were needs to be mutually consensual and needs to be non coercive. And it just need you need to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I wish that for everyone. Mm. I wish everyone to be able to have that experience. Yeah, there's a lot of um, taboo, right, <sighs> around there. And a lot of things that we, like, learn and grow up really young with, right? Like, pick up these certain innuendos or these certain, like, undertone suggestions, but they're really more like judgments or something, if you will. They're judgments, they're shame, and... Mm. You know, the other piece I'd love to see is we talk about whole person wellness all the time, right? Yeah. Like mind, body, spirit. And we seem to exclude sex. So like, oh, we're going to get your mind and your body and your spirit all aligned and we're going to have this amazing sober life and we're going to have this, you know, this mental wellness. 
And then maybe we'll talk about sex if there's a problem. Yeah. Well, how about we talk about sexual health? How about yeah. we talk about sexual wellness? Mm-hmm. Why does it have to be something that we have to like kick to the curb until something goes wrong? Yeah. Like let's have this be a vital part of our lives, something that we can talk about, something that we can enjoy and explore and not be ashamed of. Yeah. I mean – it's not like people aren't having it, right? Well, you know, we, we do have lots of babies being born. Mm-hmm. So I have some proof. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have lots of people who are having sex and not having babies, which is perfectly amazing, too. Yeah, yeah. Do you think addicts uh, like to have a lot of sex? <laughs> I think everyone <laughs> likes to have a lot of sex. And I think yeah. addicts are just more honest about it. Mm, got it. Uh-huh. Got it. Okay, cool, cool. Well, let's go to question number two. Sure. Question number two is, what do you love? What do you love? What do I love? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Someone asked me once, what's your favorite sound? Mm. And I was like, my favorite sound is the sound of a cat purring. Mm. Because when cats purr, they're 100% in the moment. Mm. And it reminds me of kind of the illusion (laughs) of a Pussy purring, right? Mm, yeah. And so I think I love the idea of being in our bodies and just being in that state where we can purr, mm. whether it's by ourselves and we're in touch with our sexuality yeah. or whether it's with a partner or right. whether it's just knowing that sexual side of ourselves and being able to integrate it. That's what I love. And I love being able to connect with people and help people find that in themselves mm. and find more harmony and happiness and integration. I love that. And I definitely want to get into some of the things that prevent that with four people today. Sure. And whether that's culturally, personally, societally, like we're going to go there. And before we go there, we're going to get into this other question. What is a book that has influenced or shaped you personally? So one of my favorite books is actually The Guide to Getting It On. Okay. Um, and I love masturbation from A to Z. Another Ooh. one. Um, I wrote a dissertation on masturbation, so okay. it was a you know seminal um, piece of work. Ironically, the the work that I often think of the most is actually old school, The Joy of Sex. Okay, okay. And Talk to us about that. It's because. You know, as I said, I had a very progressive parent. I was going to say, is that the one your dad gave you? This is the one my okay. dad gave yeah. me. Right. So nice. we had talked about this. My yeah. my father, when I was 11, mm-hmm. sat me down and said, here's this book. And it was, the, you know, the old school illustrated, lots of hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and said, I want you to read this. You have two weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, then we're going to sit down and go through page by page, picture by picture, and talk about this. And Ooh. I was like, huh? <laughs> at 11, right? And yeah. I had an hey, opportunity <laughs> to have this conversation with my opposite sex parent. And his whole thought process was, I want you to understand sex. I want you to understand your own sexuality. And I want you to explore however you want to explore so that when you're with a partner, whether mm-hmm. it's a boy, whether it's a girl, right. whether it's boys and girls, whatever yeah. it is, um, that it's – with intention and it's intentionality and it's not because, oh, well, somebody said I should do this. And having the opportunity to sit down with that particular book at that particular age right. was hugely meaningful. Now, I would probably – and I have when I'm doing sex ed with younger folks now. I pull out the guide to getting it on. 
for similar reasons. But that's like thousands of pages, it feels like. But so it takes a little longer to get through. But it's that same piece and it's so much more inclusive than obviously the joy of sex was. But for its day, it was huge. Yeah. So it's kind of the new school versus the old school and takes it a step further. Absolutely. How how did your father sitting you down like that? How did that support you like later on? Oh, it was it was huge. I can't even describe how tremendous that was, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't see a lot of you know, fa- especially fathers, maybe even mothers, feeling like they could do that with their with their kids or with young people in general. And that's true. I mean, my mother didn't feel comfortable doing it, and so my father took the it's like reins. Quite the guy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it was it was something that was really interesting because mm-hmm. what it prepared me for later on in life was being able to have conversations right. with people that I might not have been so comfortable having that conversation with at first because it's very intimate. And when I say not comfortable having that conversation around, yeah. you know, the other person might not be comfortable with it. Yeah. So it taught me how to kind of navigate that. Yeah. And most importantly, it was just, it was so freeing. Right. I found that when I went into junior high and high school, I had friends that were, you know, kind of close your eyes, cross your fingers, hope it goes well. And that was their sexual experience. And I didn't have that. Like, I went in eyes wide open. And if something didn't go well, I could go, yeah, not my cup of tea. We'll try it again. Yeah. Like, it's not that I hated it. It's not that it was painful. I just didn't like it that much. I'll try it again because I believe in trying everything twice. The first time's always weird and novel. (laughs) And so let's try it again. You got that, listeners? Do it twice. Do it twice. Unless it's painful (laughs) or, you know, like, or traumatic. Do it twice. Yeah. And... And then it was like after the second time, I'm like, eh, that's not my cup of tea. It didn't have to be horrific to not right. be my cup of tea. It could be just like, eh, that's not my preference. Right. And I had friends that would either throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, yeah. I'm never doing anything like that ever again. Like, yeah. never get near my butt. And I'm like, okay, there's <laughs> lots more you can do with your butt. Um, or <laughs> yes. they would continue doing things hoping it would feel better because right. they were trying right. to impress someone or convince themselves. Right. And I'm like, that's not healthy either. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Susan, um, we have a few questions from some guests. Okay. And for the guys and gals that messaged me, here it goes. Well, you will remain anonymous, but uh, let's get right into it. <laughs> but I won't. Yeah. <laughs> so question number one, is sex addiction similar to alcohol addiction or is it more of a behavior based is it more of a behavior based on past wounds or lack of emotional needs? Okay. So this is a multifaceted fun question. <laughs> so as far as kind of biochemistry goes, um, addiction is addiction in the sense that we have a dopamine release. Um, our pleasure system and our reward system is being triggered mm-hmm. and has a new baseline. So from that perspective, sex addiction is very much like alcohol addiction, just like mm-hmm. drug addiction. And it can be things like gambling as well or, or codependence. Yeah. As far as um, the behavioral component, most people, what's so funny is people associate um, sex addiction with merely being behavioral, and they don't associate alcohol addiction or drug addiction with being behavioral. And yet alcohol it, and drug addiction are just as behavioral. Explain that a little as bit. Sex addiction. Explain that a little bit. So one of the things that, I mean, sex addiction being behavioral makes sense, right? Right. It's an, it's, act, invo- it's an act, you're engaging actively in doing something. You're thinking about it before you do it. Right, it's either porn or, <laughs> yeah. I'm, or I'm having Ooh, sex I want to talk about different- porn in a little bit too. People. Yeah. Right, and I'm not saying porn's bad. I'm just mm. saying, I'm talking addiction to porn, right? Yes, yes, so, yes, yes. Um, so, and, and we're like, okay, this involves an active behavior. But so does using. 
Right. Right. And we still have those behavioral cravings. We have all sorts of things that we have to deal with in terms of our behaviors to break patterns yes. so that we don't get into these behavioral patterns, which then set us up for, you know, being in a position where our cravings are being triggered. So it, it's just as behavioral in a lot of ways. Mm. But as far as past wounds and trauma go, yeah. you know, one of the things that we see with sex addiction is that individuals often do have a history of sexual trauma or emotional intimacy trauma. So mm. it may not even be sexual. It might be something like reactive attachment disorder where they didn't have a good connection with their primary parent growing up and they never learned how to develop the bonds of intimacy. Yeah. So we see with, you know, with not with everyone who has sex addiction, but with a large number of folks that have sex addiction, they have intimacy issues as well. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. there's a subset of folks for whom sex addiction is almost like OCD. Yeah. Where it's very behavioral in that way, where it becomes kind of an entrenched obsession. And then the compulsion is actually the sex act right. or the watching porn to relieve the, the you know, the obsession that's going yeah. on. Yeah. And so you have this constant obsession. I'm obsessing. obsessing and then I do this act and it gives me this release. And so for some, yeah. we conceptualize it the way we would conceptualize OCD. Right. And in those individuals, it's often also accompanied by depression. Mm. And so the depression or the anxiety kind of couples along with it and can be driving or reinforcing that kind of OCD behavior. Well, and there's probably varying degrees of severity with that, right? Absolutely. And some, some of that may work, you know, for certain mm -hmm. individuals. And then I guess you – maybe it's a personal question someone asks themselves is, is at what point is this too much or is it too much or – Maybe they get to navigate that with someone like you. It is. And it's one of those pieces, yeah. you know, and different researchers cite different research. You right. Know, sex addiction has been called different things over the years. We right. used to call it sexual compulsive disorder. Mm. And we used to think of it as like an OCD type of disorder and not perceive it as an addictive process. Yeah. Then we only saw it as what we call like a process addiction, like right. gambling. And so dependent upon the provider you're working with, they're going to take a different approach. Yeah. When people ask me, well, do you think I have a sex addiction? My first question to them is, well, what do you think? Mm. And then I have them start to tell me what ways in which their sex, their sex behavior is impacting their life. Is it interfering with your life? That's the big one. I've, so, yeah. So, like, I've got friends that are, like, I don't know, kind of religious or whatnot and, like, Looking at porn, like, even once or thinking about it, like, it's just, like, I've got a problem. I've got an addiction. And then I've got other friends, like, going to Tijuana and having sex with prostitutes, like, pretty regularly and are totally just, like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I don't see what the issue is. And I think when it comes to sex, the thing that's really interesting is it interacts with those belief systems, right? Yeah. So... Often. Belief systems, oh, y'all. Massive This is the Sober system. Life Audio Experience podcast. <laughs> We're getting into some belief systems right here. Big time. Big <laughs> time. Because when we have someone that's very religious, mm -hmm. the act of having sex outside of marriage might be so problematic for them mm -hmm. that the only way that they can conceptualize that need or that drive is to think that it has to be addictive in nature. Right. And so it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria for addiction if we were to look at it from a clinical perspective. But right. it's causing them a tremendous amount of distress. True. So for them, I wouldn't, like personally, I probably wouldn't diagnose them as someone with sex addiction, but someone who's having adjustment disorder, who right. has potentially depression, anxiety, and that sex is a trigger for this. Mm. And so 
we're going to be working on, well, either how do we adjust attitude and belief or how do we modify right. behavior? Because right. then we have to deal with behavioral modification. But as far as, you know, going out and, and working with sex workers or working with a femdom, like at the end of the day, if it's not interfering with your daily process, if it's mm-hmm. not interfering with your ability to have the types of emotional relationships that you want to have. Right. And there's the key. What do you want to have? I have folks that are like, I don't want intimacy in my life, and I'm okay not having intimacy in my life. I, I, I think like, that's okay. worth. I think that's worth repeating. Everyone listening, what do you want to have? Yes. What do you want to have? Yeah. And that's a that's an entirely personal question that everyone gets to ask themselves and answer for themselves and answer for themselves. And I think there's plenty of avenues to find support with that. Mm-hmm. And then like, to thine own self be true. Right. Absolutely. And it changes over our lives too. Right. Uh, yes. So like what I want out of my sex life or out of my physicality is going to change in part based on what my body can perform. Mm. Like welcome mm-hmm. to menopause ladies. Like, uh, our bodies, <laughs> you know, like, and but at the end or erectile dysfunction for your 50 year old man, that like Cialis, Viagra, right. Levitra. And if you have a heart condition, too bad. So sad. Pull out the penis pump. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, you know, what I want is so different and it's going to be based on other things in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, at 25, I might want to have sex four times a day every day and be totally okay with it. Yeah. And like, I'm like, okay, is that a sex addiction? No. You're t- is it interfering with your work? No. Is it interfering with your social life? No. Yeah. Yeah. Is it everybody's cup of tea? No. Mm-mm. If at 50, it's still the same, go you. You don't need Viagra. Like, you Hell don't need yeah. any additional support. Or those, you know, that hormone replacement is working for you, babe. Mm-hmm. Like, Go you, but Rock if they're it. like, this is a problem for me. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. I feel anxious around it. It's interfering my. That's a whole different thing, and that might even just be sex once a day yeah. for that person, yeah. or how long they're thinking about it, or the ruminations that they're having about it, and kind of that constant obsessing over mm. it. Because that's the piece too. It doesn't necessarily mean acting on it. Got it. So we're going to get into another question again for everyone listening on Facebook Live. This is the Sober Life Audio Experience Podcast. Please, if you have questions that you want to ask live, go ahead and ask them. We are taking live questions. I'm going to get into uh, one more that I had written from a friend. And uh, please post your live questions if you have them. So this is from a friend of mine. And he says, Brian, I do have a question. I was molested for years when I was really young from a babysitter. I can't hold a relationship at all. And all I want to do is have sex. And when I get that, I'm done. So what do I do? I'm just lost and want a relationship, but I can't figure out how to maintain it. So this is not all that uncommon. So, you know, the desire to have sex is hardwired. Mm. And that's one of the things that we forget about. So his desire to want to have sex is not unusual and isn't in and of itself the problem that he's presenting. Yeah. What he's saying is, I can't find intimacy. I don't know how to have intimacy. And that previous trauma has caused me to not be able to create intimacy today. Yeah. So for someone who's experiencing that, and that's not unusual for survivors of sexual abuse, whether it's a child, whether it's during uh, adolescence, whether it's in the context of their marriage, right, 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 or their partnership, that sexual abuse is so intimate that it causes us to shut down our willingness and capacity to be intimate in future relationships for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I got a question for you. How do you how do you compare or contrast or or bring together intimacy and vulnerability 
Is there, I mean, is there overlap? Are they separate entities? Oh, there absolutely is overlap. Okay. You, it's really difficult. I have yet to see, I'm sure I could be proven wrong, <laughs> but I have yet to see someone who can be intimate and not be vulnerable. Because we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable in order for us to have intimacy. And this is where some of that trauma comes in, right? right, right. Because when we're being violated, our trust is being violated even more so than our physicality. Mm. The physicality is the means through which the trust is broken. And what it means is we have allowed ourselves, or even if we didn't allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that moment, um, we were vulnerable whether we wanted to be or not. Mm-hmm. And we weren't able to control the physical vulnerability that we had, but mm-hmm. we can control the emotional vulnerability that we allow ourselves to yeah. have. And yeah. so when I see folks who aren't able to be intimate, it's because they're so guarded, mm-hmm. because they're so afraid that if they let their guard down, something bad is going to happen, or they don't trust their judgment, right. especially if it's someone that they trusted that violated that trust. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't trust my judgment, so I'm not going to trust anyone, and that's going to keep them from being able to be intimate. Right. Doesn't mean they're not going to be sexual, though. Right, right. You know, and I see a lot of parallels right there with the guardedness, mm-hmm. not just with uh, intimacy and vulnerability, but you you see that in with addiction, drug addiction and uh, alcoholism. And I guess my question for you is, is what what are some ways to what creates the space for people to open up, feel the trust? I mean, is it something that can happen in a moment or is it something that needs to take place slowly over a period of time? Both. Okay. So... You know, it has to be intentional. So it's not something that just kind of magically appears out of thin air. Right, right. You have to be willing to create that space. So there has to be a willingness um, to create it. And what I've seen with folks is we'll be working on it intentionally. And sometimes it's through a back door, no pun intended. Yeah, right. (laughs) um, To kind of address the vulnerability. And then all of a sudden, kind of one day after, you know, months or years of working, it's like, boom, I'm there. Yeah. Um, and for others, it's a slow progression where they recognize that they're gaining vulnerability and the willingness to be vulnerable along the way. And, you know, that vulner- that need to be vulnerable, vulnerable and that ability to create vulnerability is something that's not just with regard to sexual trauma, but it's about sexual identity, gender identity. Mm. All of these things Got it. Um, with regard to sexuality require vulnerability for us to take a look and then be true to ourselves and have a real meaningful connection beyond just the physical and the sexual. Got it. Got it. Y'all listening, we're on the Sober Life Audio Experience. We have a live question. Piggybacking off the last question, is it possible for someone with a heavy sexual past, both abusive and by choice, to one day achieve intimacy. I want it, but it feels impossible. It is absolutely possible. Um, One of my specialties in my private practice is working with um, women who have been survivors of sexual abuse, who aren't 20, who aren't 30, who are 50, who are 60, who are 70 years old. And sometimes it's the first time they're coming into therapy. Sometimes it they've had therapy for years, but they haven't worked with someone who has really been willing and able and open to talk about sexuality Mm -hmm. because not all therapists are comfortable with it. And that's, Mm -hmm. and that's fine. So I, I really, really reiterate to everyone that, you know, it's something that's going to take work. 
and it's going to take time and it's going to be hard. This is going to be hard work. And I'm going to be asking a lot of the person that I work with and any sex therapist that you would be working with or any therapist that's working on the sexuality Mm -hmm. is going to be asking a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it's going to be scary. And I tell people all the time, it's going to take practice and practice makes better. Not practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. And if we go in with the assumption that the first several times we try something, we're going to be bad at it. Yeah. Because let's be real. The first several times we do stuff, we're not like amazing out the gate. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not sex goddesses the first time we have sex. Right. You know, like if it is, it's accidental Adonis syndrome. (laughs) And there might be some narcissism going on. We won't. A little bad. A little bad. (laughs) But the reality is it takes practice. Yeah. And that practice, it can be very, very disheartening when out the gate it's like, oh, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's okay. You did it, which means it worked on some level. Mm-hmm. And so constantly being able to hold that hope that it will get better, but it's going to be incremental. And there's the piece too. When I work with patients and when other therapists that I know in the community work with patients, we talk to people about incremental change because what happens is we often don't seek help until it's so bad that we can't tolerate it anymore. And then we want massive change in order for us to feel better. The problem is that we didn't get to the place we're at like in two seconds flat, and we're Mm -hmm. not going to get out of the place that we're at in two seconds flat. And so we have to give ourselves credit for those incremental pieces, and that's what the therapist can help with. Got it. hold on, keep hope, find the right therapist, and it's really about the right fit with the right therapist. Got it. So um, we're getting close to the end, but I, I have another question that came up with uh, some other people that had sure. messaged me, and, and, and it had to do with getting what they want in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it went both ways. Uh, it's a little weird. So, like, I had both men and women message me saying, like, a guy is like, hey, like, I want to try new things with my girl, but I don't know how to tell her. Mm-hmm. And a girl was saying the same thing. Like, I want to go further with my guy in the bedroom. And it was kind of alluding to butt stuff. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how does that how does that come up? Or even aside from that, like, how, how do you improve communication? Because I think people are just shy or embarrassed or don't, don't know how to ask for what they want. And we don't have the vocabulary. Okay, right? so yeah. So one of the things is to own up to your partner that this is an uncomfortable conversation for me to have. Okay. Right? And say... Dude, so I need to talk to you about this thing, and it's kind of uncomfortable for me because it's going to be awkward and gawky and weird, and I don't know what to say, and I don't know how to say it. So that's like the first piece. And then to just stumble through it and Mm -hmm. start talking, having a conversation. And that's the key. It can't be a monologue. Like, I want this, I want this, I want this. So what do you think? Mm -hmm. It has to be – so this is – what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, this is the sort of thing I want to try. Yeah. Is this something, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. What are? What do you want to explore? And then, you know, working your way, and it might not be like, okay, so we might not try anal the first time out. Right. But we might try some digital stem, right? Yeah. And it might be mutual. Like, yeah. And, or, it's like, you know what, I want, okay, my, my, my partner wants to try this with me. Yeah. And I can be in a same-sex relationship. I can be in an opposite-sex relationship. And I'm not so sure how I feel about this. And so, Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to go to the sex shop, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up a dilator. Or I'm going to pick up something, uh, you know, a butt plug or something. Yeah. and I'm just going to get some good lube. And that's the first thing we're going <laughs> to talk go. about lube, you know, like going get and getting regular 
Vaseline or KY, not the good choice. Right? <laughs> and I'm going to talk to someone about anal lube, and maybe I'm going to try self-stimulation first. There you so go. So that I start to get comfortable with it, so that then when I try it with my partner, it's not like, oh, and I'm freezing up, <laughs> right? And then if it's something we don't like, we have to be able to give the other person permission to say, right. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And if it was painful, then we need to figure that out. And if it was just weird, okay, again, right. let's try it twice. Yeah. The first time's always going to be weird. Try it twice, y'all. And try it twice. I love it. I love it. So let's get into what someone who is struggling, who's who's in pain, who's hurting, what what kind of advice, whether they're whether they're suffering from suffering with some sort of sex addiction, feeling crazy, feeling like they're alone, weird, someone with a drug or alcohol addiction, what would you what kind of nugget of wisdom would you give someone in that in that hopeless state? That there is hope. Okay. And that there's hope in healing. Mm. And that not only is there hope in healing, but that healing's a process. Mm. One of the things I share all the time is that mental illness, substance use disorders, sexual problems, sexual dysfunction, sexual trauma, these are chronic illnesses. But just because we have a chronic illness doesn't mean we can't thrive and doesn't mean we can't manage it in a way that accommodates maybe problems that we're going to significantly have for the rest of our lives. So if I have an addiction, that doesn't mean that once I learn to manage my addiction that I can't go out and have fun. Right. I can go and have fun. Please have fun. My addiction, right? Like, and because I have my addiction managed, I can actually have fun. Mm -hmm. I might learn that there are certain things that I can't do sexually. Like Mm -hmm. maybe I've broken my hip and there's just positions that are out of the question. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I can't have sex. Mm -hmm. It just means, you know, I'm not going to be on all fours. Right. Without a trapeze holding me up. Yeah. So there's, All sorts of ways to accommodate and that it's a process and there's hope. And we just have to believe that there's hope and then reach out and talk to someone. And it doesn't have to be a professional at first. It can be your primary care doc. It can be a friend that you know that's in recovery. Mm. and Or it can be, you know, going to a group. Or it can be reaching out to if you're, you know, if you're religious, reaching out to your pastor, reaching Mm -hmm. out to your rabbi, to your priest. You know, it doesn't have to be or... If you're LGBT, coming into the community center and right. talking with someone, right. there's all sorts of avenues. And we can do it anonymously, but we can also do it in a way that really respects who we are mm-hmm. and allows us to find who we can be. Mm. Mm. I love it. I love it. Susan, where where can people find you? Where, where can people, I mean, Susan Ryder, sex therapist, Aurora Behavioral Health. So Aurora does not do sex therapy. We should start by saying that. It's a disclaimer, disclaimer. Disclaimer, right? y'all. If you're looking for sex therapy, then yes. Aurora is not the place um, because we do, you know, we do the treatment of addiction. Got but, it. But not, not sex help. Um, my practice right now is I'm sadly, for, for those listening, I'm full. But um, you can reach me at drsusanwriter at gmail.com. So that's D-R-S-U-S-A-N. W-R-I-T-E-R at gmail.com. And I'm happy to find someone in the community that can work with you. There are tons of colleagues that are amazing here and up in Orange County and up in L.A. And I'm happy to help connect you with someone um, in that capacity. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we've got another episode of the Sober Life audio experience in the books. We had the 
phenomenal, wonderful guest. Susan, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And to our listeners and fans, we love you. See you soon. Until next time. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.